Hello there, I'm Willie Campbell and you're listening to The Good Stuff In Between. If I could only read your mind With superhuman power Life would be a breeze sometimes The good stuff's in between the lines My thoughts and my feelings Still tell a thousand lies But now you're taking away my sorrow You're taking away my fear We're not promised tomorrow So let me hold you close, my dear Nothing's gonna bring me down No thinking about the past While we're building for tomorrow Nothing's gonna bring me down Hello and welcome back to the Good Stuff In Between podcast with me Sean Milne. In this series we're taking a look behind the scenes of the music industry, speaking with some of those who are making it all happen, hearing their stories, seeking their advice in the hope that it can all help or inspire those setting out on their own journeys. In this second episode I spoke with Willie Campbell, one of Scotland's best loved singer-songwriters who's shared some of his memories from the highs of making it with the band Astrid to the lows of having it all snatched away, the joy of recovery and reinvention, the creativity and doing the thing he cherishes the most with the people he loves. He also shares his thoughts on the music industry's duty of care to people, the new pressures on emerging artists and the real importance of self-belief. He's honest, inspiring, revealing I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Musician, songwriter, mentor, meeting today straight from Hell Kelt, where you performed yourself, and with the Tumbled Souls, you know, on stage at Anlanter, opening the festival itself, been doing hours of rehearsal. The festival club, you know, you've been you know, running around ragged, I'm sure, all through Stormy this weekend. Where do you get the energy? Well, that's a, that's a tricky question. I, the fact I love doing my job definitely helps a lot. You know, it really does. It's not, it's not like I'm dragging myself to a job that I don't want to do. I mean, we had a we had a ten hour rehearsal on Friday, and I came out of it cross-eyed, but I was really looking forward to the next one the next morning. So, it's a genuine love for the thing that you do that probably pushes you on sometimes, I think. So for folk who haven't been lucky enough to be here, that rehearsal was for a special show, which usually happens beforehand um, in different guises at the uh, Hepkel Festival and Atlanta specifically. This was Shore to Shore, is that right? Yeah, Shore to Shore is like a Between Islands project, which is was the brainchild of Alex MacDonald, who is the booker in, in Atlanta. She had an idea to just pull people from different genres together, uh, from Orkney and Shetland and Lewis, and uh, some of the Southern Isles as well, people have contributed. And the first project was songwriting. It was myself, Chris Drever and Arthur Nicholson. 
so we wrote a pile of songs and then the second one was fiddle tunes and this one was specifically about country music so one of my greatest loves so I was uh, I was delighted to be involved we, we wrote some new songs and, and played some classics and some spirituals which always go down well quite here. So I'm real interested in the process of that and how you get together to figure out what you are going to do but you mentioned country music there as well you went to Nashville some time ago. I did yeah I had a I had a publishing deal with a company in Nashville uh, called Big Loud Shirt it was run by this guy called uh, Craig Wiseman so I had an opportunity to go there and, and write, write with other country musicians and writers and got that sort of very intense writing room experience where people clock in at nine o'clock, have two or three co-writes a day. So they write two or three songs a day and then you, then you leave and it's like a factory. So I got a wee taste of that, that life out there. So I really enjoyed it. It's probably the equivalent of somebody moving to Hollywood and thinking they're going to make it as an actor, though it's pretty kind of demanding and competitive, but very interesting. Has that kind of music always been a passion for you? I think in a way it, it has. When I was a kid, I would hear things like Jim Reeves and I would hear sort of Hank Williams here and there, but uh, it wasn't until I got older and got into songwriting that I really appreciated just how good it was. You know, I kind of thought they were kind of catchy pop songs that you, do, you would hear on your dad's 60s compilation, but later on I really appreciated how much depth there was to it and the craft as well. So I've maybe got a bit of a naive view of sort of songwriting, I would imagine, get hit with some kind of creative urge and you, know, you have to wait for the moment, but you're saying it's like a workshop and you're in there, it's just intense, 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 working your way through it. Yeah, I think it is. For, for professional songwriters, that's the way they, they clock in and they clock out and, and uh, it doesn't mean they don't love what they're doing, but it's it's verging on mechanical a lot of the time. But you can still feel inspired while that process of work is happening. So it's not it's not a dead thing, but you have to you have to bring it alive. You can't just sit there and wait for inspiration to strike. You know, and that's a proper skill in itself. Being able to you know come up with something, conjure up the words, conjure up the music itself. What benefit would you say is somewhere like doing a Nashville or another, you did stuff with Finn and Napier as well I think quite recently, how, how does that help individual artists, is it you're challenging each other, is it you're inspiring each other, what's... I think it's something that I probably wouldn't have been ready for 10 years before I went to Nashville because you have to know when you're co-writing when not to say anything because a lot of the time writers will have really strong ideas straight away and you'll be like, what about this, what about this? And it's good just to hold that back. And I think that's something that comes with, with maturing and uh, appreciating somebody else's idea. And it's like putting a jigsaw together sometimes. You can sort of see it, you can see it all happening and it's, it's pretty amazing because somebody will take something to a song that I would never have dreamt off and it works the other way around so you can come out with a really amazing result. In terms of this latest project, is that the kind of thing you're able to draw on that experience now, uh, having gone through it a couple of times and working with other really strong artists too, um, you just, I mean, you don't have a lot of time to, to pull this together, let's face it, you know, in terms of taking it from the early stages to the rehearsals to on the night. Well, it, it, it all definitely helps and everybody in that group was a little bit older and very well experienced with that, with this whole, uh, these gigs 
it happens sometimes if you do Celtic Connections or you, there's like a commission and it's, it all builds up to one show. It's like an incredible amount of work and then it's over after one gig. So everybody that was on the stage had had that experience before. So it all really helped. And, and it is um, sometimes a question of just uh, holding back because you, there was uh, four people that could lead songs on the stage. So it's just like, okay, this is where I shot my gob and let somebody else take the lead. You know what I mean? It's... Sometimes I suppose it's putting your, your ego to one side as well and letting somebody else have the have the limelight, you know. So, but I love that. I, lo I love harmonising with people too. So it was fun. The whole night was brilliant. What does it feel like when it comes together and you see the reaction from folk like that you had? There was a couple of moments that were really special. Actually, there was uh, I hadn't sung with my cousin Duncan for five years, I don't think, and we did a couple of. Uh, Bluegrass songs, spirituals, and uh, we had Jenny Keldy singing her third harmony, and it was just like, it's brilliant. My, my cousin has such a great voice, and we have that family harmony that's very unique to people that are related, I think, sometimes. It, I don't know if it's just something in your biology or something. It, it, just, it just clicks really well in a very unique way, so, yeah, it was a great night. You talked there about experience you know, and the time being right for you to do those kind of sessions. For folk who are maybe at the earlier stages of their career, you know, who've maybe got a few tunes under their belt, who are starting to emerge, um, maybe even won some awards, try and find their feet with uh, bands or uh, just their place in the whole music industry. What, what kind of tips would you give them? I mean, what should they focus on? Or more importantly, perhaps, what should they not worry about? Well, I think it's... <sighs> I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of writing something that you think is going to be popular, whereas what we're all meant to be doing is trying to be unique and be ourselves because in the end that's what appeals to people. If, if you're consistently just doing what it is you're meant to be doing, you, you pull people along eventually, I think. I mean, I've definitely fallen into the trap, probably from being in Nashville, of writing songs that are you know, chorus driven, whereas I should maybe be trying to tell a story. And I, I find myself falling into that trap, but I think the advice would be just, it sounds so trite and kind of cliched, but just be yourself, but be consistent and write as much as possible. And if you're a, if you're a singer, perform as much as possible because it absolutely, all the small gigs, feed into the big opportunities because you know how to handle yourself once you're on a bigger stage. One of the reasons this podcast even exists is um, an exchange we'd had on Facebook probably this time last year, I guess. Um, there'd been a conversation about how difficult it must be for artists these days to cope with the deluge of exactly what you're saying, the popular stuff, the social media, the videos, the TikToks. Where's the advice for these people? You know, how can we help make sure they're not stressing out about the wrong things? Is that something that you looked into any further at all? Well, I think it's it's something that everyone struggles with now because I, I was fortunate to have an opportunity when I was in my late teens into my early 20s of having a very traditional record deal where you were given an advance and you just had to be a musician and you had to just write songs and tour and that's all you had to do, we'll take care of the rest, the van will meet you here and the hotels are booked and now people that are starting out have to be tour managers, 
you've got to be a genius in social media, you've got to know how to upload your stuff to Spotify, you've got to post on TikTok a couple, three times a week or whatever the advice is just now. So it's, it's absolutely bewildering. I, I, you know, I take my hat off to people that are starting out because I think a way for me, I, I sort of found a new audience over lockdown. Weirdly, I think there was these online gigs that people really connected with and, and I found a, a new audience and a lot of them were older. They were like 50 and up. But I think if you find one social media platform that it feels like you're connecting with, put more energy there in a way. I mean, I'm still learning all of this stuff myself. I'm a full-time musician, but it's not always straightforward. So I think consistency and just and just not letting yourself get too bogged down in the social media side and keeping all your focus, as much focus as possible on the creative side because, I mean, that's really what it's all about. I mean, if you're not making a living, you still have to be getting joy from it in some way because if I wasn't loving what I was doing, I'd have, I'd have stopped because you could, there's, there's better paying jobs you could do, that's for sure. So when it was simpler then, when, you know, Astrid first happened, can you take us back to how that all occurred? I mean, it was school friends, is that right? Yeah, it was me and me and Charlie Clark. Really, we we were best pals since we were eleven. We just had really we were kind of geeks actually. We loved comics and films, and uh, we were slightly in our own little unit and our own wee world. And and uh, I left home really young. I left Lewis at fifteen, and and Charlie followed like a year after. And, it was sort of inevitable we were going to be in a band and once we started playing guitars and, and uh, put some focus into it, we found we sang really well together and, and uh, we had a couple of years of traipsing down to London for A&R gigs and then labels coming to see us in Glasgow and eventually we, we signed a deal and uh, we had a, had a great run of it. We, we, went to, we joined a band called Reindeer Section and they did quite well. So, I was but Gary Lightbody. I was Gary Light. I was yeah. Snow Patrol and Astrid really, and, yeah. and bolt-ons from bands that were more famous than us at the time to sort of pull in a crowd. Really, I guess is, is the is the truth of it. But I mean, in all honesty, I, I wasn't mature enough to make the best of that situation. I just wasn't. I, it, it, I really resented people telling me that that all happened too young because I knew we worked really hard. We had we were on the dole and we were getting our way down to London and playing these tiny wee pubs for labels and stuff. And, but it did happen too young, actually. I think with hindsight, I would have handled that whole experience very, very differently. But you live and learn. How did you make it happen? You know, because there must be loads of young folk out there, you know, trying to make their way, trying to get that deal that you got, you know, trying to make those connections, perhaps in different ways. But what... What happened for you? How did you meet the right people or land lucky? Well, it's, it, it's, it happened in a strange way because I was in a band before Astrid called Kite Monster. And Kite Monster did one single on the label that signed Astrid. So there was a connection between me and this label uh, that signed Astrid. So sometimes it's the project that you think is dead that's maybe started something off for you so it's easy to sort of join the dots in a way to the people that uh, I was making music with before. When that happens for you, when you get the deal however it occurs, it must be on cloud nine, it must be like we've made it. 
there was a few moments like that actually. It was sort of, it was gradual in a way though because our, our label had been investing a little bit in us. They had a connection to Edwin Collins who really loved us. So we were down recording at his studio in West Hampstead before we'd actually signed a deal. He uh, did your EPs, didn't he? He did, he did our EPs and he did our album, our first album too. So there was already signs that we were as good as signed to the label, but the actual moment where you're it was very old school, you know, putting your signature on a on a bunch of papers. That was a kind of pretty special moment, actually. I remember, I, I think I was 19 at the time. And Did you spend the money before you got it in your head? No, it, well, it, it, let's be honest, I did not handle the situation that well, but one clever thing our management did was they drip-fed us the advance because I know a lot of bands around that period, they were given, like, 20 grand in their bank accounts and they went and bought a car and then they were like completely skint unless something went really really well for them so uh that was one good thing about our management we got paid 125 quid a week just to kind of keep the wool from the door and if there was prs they gave us a, a wee chunk of that as like a bonus but they were very smart in how they uh how they, how they gave us the money so it avoided any total financial disasters so when that happened for you, you said, you know, you, you might have been just a bit young to fully cope with it in the way you might have liked. With today's generation, there's a different kind of pressure. Is there a duty care on the industry to make sure folk are supported? Is it just down individuals? Is there a, you know, is there a lesson for people to take from all artists in terms of learning to cope in their own ways? I think there is a duty of care actually if people end up on a big label that you know they're looked after because the moment when that safety net is taken away from you is, is traumatic unless something's gone really well in your career and you're one of the lucky ones that get sort of a, a five-year spell or four-year spell where you're making a lot of money and you can pay for your house you know that happens it does happen but for a lot of people that are in that situation they have a good run and then the label back then would come to you and say, really sorry, we've invested all that we can and, you know, we can't really put any more money into your into your bank accounts. But Astrid, we're fortunate we had some adverts that paid money, so we got an extra year of wages. But the day came where that was where that was done and, and that's that's a horrible situation because a lot of the time people are back with their parents and they've had this environment where you know, you're not living in luxury, but pretty much you're being looked after. It's like, go there, be there, everything's taken care of. Here's 20 quid or a tenner a day for, for food while you're away and, you know, we'll, we'll take care of everything. And then that's kind of gone. I found that really, I found that uh, a real shock to the system. Because you're effectively, like, unemployed and your entire focus has been being in a band with your best pals, and then you're all kind of on the dole again. Just sort of lost that sense of abandonment almost. Yeah, it was, it was a real kind of shock to the system, and, and a real boot to your, to your ego as well, and your pride, because you're, you know, you're, you're flying high, and then you're kind of back, back on the dole. And, uh, but I think there's a whole other layer of mental health issues now with social media. I mean, I find that sometimes just opening my phone, a really negative experience. And it's not always out of professional jealousy, but you're thinking, I, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. And 
and, and, and it's a recipe for just eating into your creative energy. And I think that's a real issue for, for young artists now because you have to, you have to be engaging in social media. And it's not for everyone. That's the simple truth. Some people don't have the, have the mental, uh, they're, they're not robust enough in a mental health sense to, to cope with all of that. So I think it's really challenging for, for young bands and young artists. I wonder if the industry needs to look at that specifically and say, actually, don't you worry about that. We've got people to do that. We've got people who understand algorithms. We've got people who can work with you to create the content that will help market you, will promote you, which is essential what it is, but it almost seems like you're trying to do it on the cheap. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think once people are at a point where they can develop a team and there's already money being made, that means it's worth people, it's worth your while getting involved with an artist and supporting them. They're quite far down the line already. It's the guys that are filling out, you know, if, even if you're filling out a 200 cap venue, which maybe doesn't sound like much, but if you're doing that consistently in towns around the country, you're doing well in my in my book, but you're maybe still not at the point where you've got a, somebody that's going to manage your socials for you, you know, or or kind of you're you're still going to be on a very much a DIY level. Whereas 20 years ago, if you were at that level, you would have had a label taking care of you and, and doing your press and stuff. I also wonder if it can skew the industry as well, but because you know it's great for some people who are discovered by social media or who are taken on because they've got a following already, because they've been cute about it, clever about it. But equally, I wonder if there's many talented artists have lost out because they just have to be really good at what they do, but they don't work that side of things. I think that's one of the, I mean, I sound like a bit of an old fart, but I think that's one of the tragedies of the modern music industry, is that there is no, there is no such thing as a recording artist that doesn't have to tour anymore. Or, or you know, you, maybe it's somebody shy that is a creative genius and they're being lost. I mean, there's no way these people aren't being lost. Whereas before there was an opportunity for them to record and thanks very much. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to tour. I'm just going to make music. And you know, there, there were people like that who, who labels would invest in. And I think that's a real loss. I think there's a, there's a whole layer of people that are just not making music because it's too hard to make a living. It'd be very easy for people in that situation to walk away or who've done something and just give up, say, I have my chance. You didn't do that, you know. After that straight experience, you continued. You've reinvented yourself many times. It's been, you've got tumbling souls now. You know, you had the open day rotation as well. You've, you perform, um, you teach, you participate. There must be something deep within inside you in the same way there are in other artists? Is it, just, is it a love for music? Is it you just view it as your job? How, how do you square that into making it you know, a lifelong career? It's difficult to pin down, but you, there's a drive within some people and it doesn't really matter what happens, you won't keep doing it anyway. Because I, I, would, I would feel completely lost if I didn't have if I didn't have songwriting and I didn't have music, I mean, it's it's a, it's therapeutic for me. I love performing. I, in some ways, I can be a bit shy, but in, in other ways, I'm a really awful show off, and I get to kind of express that. Is it you? Is it you on stage? Is it you the person, or is it some kind of um, character? 
more and more, I'd, I'd say it's just me. And I think I've become more and more relaxed as the years have gone by. Uh, I think I maybe went through a period of not seeing very much on stage with Astrid and just kind of getting on with the songs. And now I'm more kind of, what have I got to lose? I'm in my mid-40s, you know what I mean? I've just There isn't anything to lose anymore. So just let your guard down and perform to the best of your ability and let people see who you are when you're performing. When you're on stage with Urban Souls um, the other day, you talked about that bit stepping back, you know, and it was almost like you were all itching to sing, to play, to really enjoy yourselves. It looked like you were enjoying yourselves as a collective, as a group. Is it fun? It's uh, At Tumbling Souls, it's the most fun I've ever had in a band, I'd say, because there are so many. It's not like it's focused all on me. Spanish is a is a lead man in his own right, and Stephen is is an incredible musician. Louise is an amazing musician. Dave's the best drummer of the island. Carney's a great singer on bass. So and we spark off each other. If Spanish sees me reacting a certain way, he'll react in another way, and it's it's a great band to be in, and it's it's a it's a very natural chemistry, and uh, there's a lovely energy in that band that I'd like to kind of keep a hold of that. How did it happen? How did it come together? It pro just through me going down the rabbit hole with country music and I needed to find people to play these songs and the the guys in Open Day weren't particularly into country music, to be honest, so I needed to find some people to play these songs with. It sort of started with a song called Dance A Little Better, which was almost like a Cajun song, just very simple chord changes, but uh, so it really, it, it just needed new new blood for these songs. And that's kind of how it came about. And, and you've got new stuff out as well? Yeah, we've got, uh, we had a single come out at the end of June and we've got another three lined up. We're kind of debating whether to gather it into an EP or make this the core of the next album. But we're going to be putting singles out consistently because that's the, that's the modern way now. So, And is this going to be a project that you do for fun, creativity, part of living, or, you know, are you going to take it somewhere? Well, I'm, I mean, I, t I try not to think of it in terms of, is it going to go somewhere? Is it something that's going to be able to pay my bills? Because uh, you, d you don't want to weigh something down with that pressure, I wouldn't say. But it's certainly the project I feel like I want to put all my energy into because of that chemistry and because of that joy that we all get performing together. The island itself is really blessed with so many great talents you know, from all different kinds of genres. But you've also got some great studios here as well to work with. Does that help, do you think, that sort of creative process? The fact that everything's here or you know, do you still feel people are forced to travel? Well, I, I certainly feel like it's helping because definitely I would have travelled to Glasgow. I was, a, in fact, before lockdown came, Tumbling Souls had studio time booked in Glasgow, and we didn't need to. We didn't need to pick that up again because the quality of the studios up here is, is so high. Keith's has always been great. Keith's new residential place is phenomenal, but Black Bay had been well established for a few years, and I mean it's world class. It really is. So there isn't really that need that there was previously to go down to Glasgow because X Studio had really good Neumanns or great compressors or whatever like that. You, you, a lot of the time you're paying for 
someone's experience. You know, somebody like Pete, who spent 20 years of his life behind a mixing desk, is going to do a much better job than me with a laptop that has Logic Pro on it. You know what I mean? It's you're, you're paying for their ears a lot of the time, and it's, and Keith as well. It's great to have these people functioning professionally on the island. Well, I seem to recall last time I spoke to you, um, you've been doing a lot of stuff during lockdown and you've been learning new skills. I had to force myself into it, yeah. Yeah, it was a real experience. Um, and I love that. I love that I can demo up to a certain standard and I'm, I'm getting more comfortable doing the odd mix for somebody as well. I uh, had, some, had some opportunities to write music for for catalogue albums. I wrote some Christmas songs for a Sky catalogue album, which I really love doing. So things like that, I'm fine with, but when it comes to making up a drum kit, it's get a professional in, you know, definitely. Can you remember the first time you went to a recording studio? I can, yeah. It was a studio in Mary Hill called Monitor, and Kai Monster were recording our first demos that we were putting on cassettes to give to labels. And uh, I spent cassettes, eh? cassettes, man. Yeah, there was a place in Glasgow and you walked in, a duplication place, and it was just walls, and I mean literally walls of cassette, cassette recorders just running off the same, the same uh, copies. Um, but yeah, my first experience in the studio was kind of, I think we were about five hours listening to the drum kit. Well, that's the way it was back in the day. It's like just spending hours listening to a snare and a kick and just, oh, man alive. Well, was it intimidating when you went in or were you just like full of swagger? No, I wasn't full of swagger. I mean, I was probably a, I was probably a bit gobby. I mean, I think I was 17, 16 or 17 when we did that first recording. And it's probably just talking rubbish like most teenagers do. But I think when it came to recording my vocals, I was like, wow, this is, this is weird, you know, a set of earphones and you're isolated and you're in a booth and that was my first experience of that. So, and I didn't sing very well because I didn't really know how to, how to sing, really. And I think my, my vocals were really weak. I imagine it would freak you out a little bit as well, being, as you say, isolated with cans on and just like, this isn't how I normally do it. Totally different experience. Really, really strange. I think when I listen back to these first recordings, I, w I was really a it's kind of afraid to use my voice properly. They're kind of quite mumbly and and low key, and I guess it may be fitted with the with the music of the band. But I, if I'd known how to sing, I probably would have sung them better. But it's interesting going back to them. So from you know Willow Campbell then to Willow Campbell now, what what's the, been the greatest change in you? Do you think so musical? Uh, musically, I, I, it it just sort of developed. I think melodically my songs back when I first started writing were really limited. I didn't really appreciate, uh, I mean it sounds crazy to say it, but I didn't, I didn't really appreciate how important the melody was in a song. And once I cracked that a little bit, it sort of took me off in a different direction. And sometimes I have to pull myself back from that in a way because the words are still really important. but. Uh, Melody has always seemed like the key to me, the thing that grabs people's attention first and foremost. You can use a melody as a vehicle to to sort of paint the words on top of it. And um, I, I just have a different appreciation of structure as well and simplicity. I think maybe when I was younger, I, I made songs too complicated. 
with loads and loads of core changes, whereas the older I've got, I've, I've sort of appreciated that limited movement is sometimes really effective. Just stay on the one chord, see what you have to see with as little movement as possible, and it can be really effective. But also doesn't distract from the imagery of the lyrics, you know, which are, have always been, I find listening to is very vivid. I feel like I can um, see a picture, um, at least my interpretation of of what it could be. Song titles, album titles, the the words themselves are, you know, storytelling, essentially. Yeah. Is, is that really important to you? Well, yeah, it, it is. It's important to feel like people can engage with them easily. I mean, there's a lot of life experiences happen to me, so it's good to have that to draw from as well. I mean, you, you've got more to draw from when you're 40 than 44, now that I am, that, than you do when you're 17 and you're starting out. I mean, been chucked a few times and that's, a, that's about it, really getting smashed with your pals, but there's a lot, there's been a lot of water under the bridge and that's, that's great to draw from in songwriting. And, and uh, I like to keep the lyrics fairly, fairly simple and easy to connect with. So I'm really pleased that you, you feel that way, that, that you, they, they give you kind of images and pictures. Obviously you've been kind enough to let us use one of your songs for the podcast theme as well. Um, asked you if you could do that because I felt it conveyed part of what the podcast is about, you know, which is life's journey. You know, start here, you go there, there's ups and downs, and it's that good stuff in between. When you're writing, nothing's going to get me down. How did that happen? You know, what, what's, I mean, do you want to go into detail about what it's about or summarise in, in terms of your intention of the song? It's a, it, was a, it was a song I had for a while and I couldn't, I can't, I wrote it on the piano and I can't play the piano. So in the recording, I had to get Keith Morrison to play the chords and I said to him, I think I asked him to play like somebody who's not very good on the piano, which is a total order for Keith because he's a, he's a bit of a genius. So um, uh, I, I tried to record it over at Black Bay actually myself and I had somebody else play the piano, my friend Alex, and it just wasn't quite right. It just wasn't how I thought it should be because I wanted it just very simplistic and the chord changes are quite sad on the chorus even though the lyric is about positivity. But I, th I think it was just kind of, I, I occasionally get that right where I sort of condense things that are going on in my life into like a little chorus and I think that was one of them that I got right because it's a, it was sort of about relationships and making the best of day-to-day -day life even though the things that you're striving for aren't quite happening for you. I mean, that's that's the case for a lot of musicians, but it's appreciating your day-to-day -day life and you can you can miss that great stuff that happens in moments and hours with your family or your children or your partner when you're, you're reaching for something big, you know, and, and it was a kind of message to myself to kind of pull yourself back and, and uh, be present in your life, you know. I guess that's a joy of music as well, that it uh, reminds you of good times or bad times, of where you are, where you've been. As you work for for the rest of the year, do you think it's been a good year so far? It's been a pretty amazing year for me, actually. Yeah, uh, last year was incredible. There was bits of work that came in that I would, I mean, I probably wouldn't have been capable of doing, to tell you the truth, before lockdown. But since I was given a wee jab to hone my recording skills and writing with other people and, and being able to teach a little bit in workshops, it's been a fantastic year. Some work came in this year that was a result of not making a hash of things a year before. So, 
always a winner. Always a winner, yes. So I'm, I'm, I've been having a great year so far. Yeah. And there, am I right saying you did something to do with films before? Was it Dark Skies, maybe? Yeah, it's Green Space, Dark Skies. Some of the work I'm doing this year. Me and my friend Kapil have been commissioned to write a song for the cycling championships that are coming to Glasgow. So we have to use material from a workshop that I'm doing in a couple of weeks' time down in Glasgow as the kind of template for the song. So work like that, I just absolutely love it. And any time I get an opportunity like that, I, I make the best of it. What was the music of your youth? And you know, do you still go back to that? I do go back to it. REM were the first band that I was completely, I mean, I was obsessed with them. I mean, I got up in the morning and put them on and listened to them for as long as possible. Uh, I still go back to REM. I was really into a band called Sugar, Bob Mould. Copper Blue? Uh, Copper Blue, just one of my favourite albums ever. I still go back there and it still sounds incredible to me. And Husker Du, I still go back a wee bit a wee bit there. And Neil Young, I was always huge on Neil Young as a kid and, and he's still one of my favourites, so, yeah. Many of your songs been like an homage to Neil Young? Oh, definitely, definitely in Kite Monster. There was probably wholesale rip-offs, to be honest with you, but yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there is, actually. Okay, I'm going to run for a ferry soon, so I'm going to ask you some quick questions if I can. Exclusive album launch or festival? Festival. Favourite food and rider? Pepperoni, pizza with chilies on it and garlic and herb dip. Favourite rider, four cans of Red Bull and bananas and water. The last song or podcast you listened to before meeting me? Of the Race is On by George Jones. If you could collaborate with anyone on the project, alive or dead, who would it be? Neil Finland from Crowded House. Maybe some co-writes, Neil, if you're up for it. <laughs> Restaurant, cinema or Lazy Sunday brunch? Cinema. Last film you saw? Oh, I can't remember the name of it. It was a really ropey docudrama about Lance Armstrong on Netflix. But yeah, that was the last film I watched. <laughs> Digital addict, like phones and gadgets, or can you switch off? <sighs> Digital addict, I'm afraid. Yeah, it was a sad truth. What does life look like after us for you? Probably the same with more headspace, actually. But I'd still be playing a guitar. And one artist everyone should be listening to right now? Hank Williams. <laughs> and from where you started to where we are now, what was the good bits in between? Uh, sharing stages with my friends, uh, being in recovery, meeting my wife. And one piece of advice you'd give to anyone listening to this who's trying to make her way in the industry? Be yourself. Don't fall into the trap of professional jealousy and just relax. It'll all come good. Well, Campbell, thank you very much. You're welcome. I know now how I went so wrong I disconnected from the power Forgot to switch myself back on The 
This was a Good Stuff In Between podcast with me, Sean Milne. Huge thanks to Willie Campbell for taking time out from what's been a hectic schedule and going into such great detail about both his personal journey and for sharing such brilliant advice that may be of use to others. Willie, of course, is also responsible for the show's theme music, Nothing's Going to Bring Me Down. You can find out more about his creativity at willycampbell.co.uk. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram or on LinkedIn. Just follow at Good Stuff In Between. And do drop us a line if you'd like to get involved. The podcast is written, edited and produced by myself at Scoop Media Associates. Thanks for listening. And watch out for the next episode dropping soon, wherever you get your podcasts. Nothing's gonna bring me down.